Good afternoon and welcome to the Hudson Institute. The Hudson Institute was founded in 1967 by strategist Herman Kahn uh, to challenge conventional thinking and help manage strategic transitions to the future uh, through interdisciplinary studies in defense, international relations, economics, healthcare, technology, culture, and law. I am Hussein Haqqani. I am director for South and Central Asia uh, here at the Hudson Institute and one of the editors of our uh, signature journal, Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. Uh, on behalf of Hudson's South and Central Asia program, uh, today I am welcoming all of you and those who are watching on the live stream uh, to the Washington DC launch of Senator Larry Pressler's book, Neighbors in Arms, an American Senator's Quest for Disarmament in a Nuclear Subcontinent. Uh, the book is available for sale, so, and uh, the Senator has kindly agreed to sign the books for those who would like, like that. <clears throat> uh, Senator Pressler, who served in the US Senate for 18 years, from 1979 to 1997, is known around the world as the author of the Pressler Amendment which limited foreign countries from using US aid to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, as the Pressler Amendment resulted in shutting down US aid to Pakistan in the 1990s, he was aggressively demonized in Pakistan and by uh, other, uh, and several of uh, my countrymen from Pakistan. Um, I have found him to be a thoughtful American, genuinely concerned about the spread of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, so it was important to try and get from him the full story of the Pressler Amendment, along with his views on how mistaken policies have led to the rise of several nuclear powers in the world, including India, Pakistan, North Korea, and possibly even Iran. <clears throat> uh, while in the US Senate, Senator Pressler served as the chairman of the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committees. He was also an active member of the Foreign Relations Committee. And Senator, I learned while uh, preparing for this event that you were the first Vietnam War veteran elected to the US Senate. Uh, a graduate of the Harvard Law School, uh, Senator Pressler was also a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. He has taught or lectured at over 20 universities, including Harvard and the uh, University of California, LA. He was a Fulbright professor in both Italy and Science Po in Paris, France. Welcome to Hudson Institute, Senator Pressler. Thank you very much. Uh, let us begin our conversation uh, with the very basic question. How concerned are you about the proliferation of nuclear weapons today? Well, I consider Pakistan more dangerous than North Korea in the sense that oh God. Pakistan is not under one control of their, they don't have a centralized control of their nuclear weapons. And it's a country that five or six generals could at any time set off a nuclear weapon or sell one. And indeed, I dream of writing a novel because I guess these uh, policy books don't sell, they, they sell, but uh, if you're really gonna get your story across, you gotta have a thriller novel that's made into a movie. But people could very easily go to Pakistan, buy five or six nuclear weapons, put them in pickup trucks, haul them out uh, through the tunnels, and haul them over to Vietnam, ship them to Canada, and then bring them into South Dakota uh, across the open border. And uh, Gosh, now let, let's not get into the fictional work yet, which hasn't been written. <laughs> That's right. Let's just, let's just focus. Um, in fact, I would draw you back a little, instead of just focusing on Pakistan. Uh, because Pakistan, American officials have acknowledged that Pakistan has a stable command and control system uh, over its nuclear program and that the US government has often certified that. So um, is the concern that you're expressing uh, somewhat perhaps more exaggerated or, 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 or comes from the heart rather than from the facts and the analysis that is available to the US government today? No, I think the facts are that uh, Pakistan has several nuclear weapons, and had we followed the Pressler Amendment, they would have none, and nor do I think India would have any. We had a chance to have a nuclear-free uh, subcontinent, and uh, 
at the same time, uh, we, we, we were effective in the sense that we set a tone that caused Brazil and, and uh, certain other countries and uh, South Africa and South Korea not to have nuclear weapons. So countries do make decisions. But in some ways, you could say that the United States, our so-called um, military-industrial state that I call the octopus with all of its law firms and uh, tentacles, actually helped Pakistan get nuclear weapons by going to the Commerce Department for licenses when, when the Glenn Pressler Amendment, and my, I want to pay tribute to my late colleague, Senator John Glenn, who was my partner in these efforts on the Pressler Amendment, but also the Pressler-Glenn Amendments, and earlier the Symington Amendment. But um, uh, uh, we, uh, the law firms, uh, the big law firms and consulting firms that were hired by Pakistan and India uh, and elsewhere, really we're working for the military industrial state and they uh, are very expensive to hire but it seems to me and you could confirm this but one of the first things a new ambassador from India or Pakistan has to do is to hire a huge law firm here for a million dollars a year and a consulting firm for another million and they give the campaign contributions and get the access and they get around what the State Department is doing or what the White House is doing so our foreign policy is made actually in law firms and in consulting firms. And we need to change that back to, and of course part of that's because Congress has abdicated its powers. That's another problem that I have. But I consider myself sort of an old-fashioned Eisenhower Republican. I'm now an independent, but I want to be a Republican again if I can be allowed. But I'm, I'm for free trade. I'm for nuclear non-proliferation. And uh, remember that Eisenhower made a deal in Korea, and we can we're going to have to balance some of these interests off and have a rational foreign policy. And I hope that our next Republican platform will have free trade in it as well as nuclear nonproliferation. Okay, so let's focus on nuclear nonproliferation, nuclear nonproliferation, which is the subject of your book. And you focused on the subcontinent. Of course, Pakistan is not the only nuclear weapons power, Pakistanis would argue, and I think that would be justified, that they were forced to become nuclear because India went nuclear. And both countries, their nuclear programs in some ways benefited from the Atoms for Peace program in the 1950s. So it was an American assumption that it could actually give to many countries a, a, an option of having a nuclear program. And these two countries, because of their uh, particular situation vis-a-vis -vis one another, ended up following uh, nuclear weapons strategies. Um, many of your critics in Pakistan uh, point out that there's a kind of a discriminatory attitude in your criticism of Pakistan when you do not criticize India for having nuclear weapons. When you authored the Pressler Amendment, did you think that you were actually trying to stop nuclear weapons in the subcontinent, or were you only thinking of stopping Pakistan's nuclear weapons? Well, I, I, I do criticize India also sometimes, but I, I, I should thank you, Mr. Ambassador, and I should have started out by thanking the Hudson Institute, but you were the ambassador from Pakistan, and you know Pakistan better than anybody in the world uh, being from there, and I, I admire your courage in uh, essentially changing sides, I suppose we could say, but we're so glad to have you here in Washington, D.C., you were here. I would argue I haven't changed sides. I, I'm, I'm consistent. That's right. I'm consistent in my position, but go ahead. Right. No, no, but, but we want to hear from you on Pakistan because you're the, so for, for me to be talking. But it seemed to me that Pakistan was dishonest about their objectives because when I first started working on the Pressler Amendment, we, some of us believe that Pakistan, what they said that they were not, they didn't want to develop a nuclear weapon. This was back in the late 70s and early 80s, and John Glenn was particularly upset because he believed them also, and George H.W. Bush believed them, and he eventually enforced the Pressler Amendment, which means that aid, aid and military relationships with Pakistan were shut off until they would stop developing a nuclear bomb, which they kept saying they were doing it. Indeed, the, the president and the leaders of Pakistan would come to uh, Congress and lie to the entire Congress. Of course, they might not have known uh, Mrs. Bhutto, she always said, we don't have a nuclear weapon, but it's possible the military never told her because the military, and you would be, you'd be able to better, she may not have been lying, she may just not have known. Uh, so I always had this problem in, in dealing 
with uh, Pakistan. Now, India has been more, uh, more uh, transparent. India reacted. But I think India has also engaged in several steps. For example, they signed the nuclear uh, deal with the United States knowing full well that unless they had parallel legislation in it for liability, it would never go anyplace. And, that's, and I would really like to see India develop peaceful use of uh, nuclear uh, weapons. But, uh, so I've been critical of both sides occasionally. But for the most part, on this subject, Pakistan has not been forthcoming and they have not been a reliable uh, uh, person for us to talk to. So, so basically, you criticize nuclear weapons or possession of nuclear weapons by both India and Pakistan, but are more critical of Pakistan because of what you see as the lack of transparency and dishonesty. And the fact that there are several groups, it appears to me, that ha have control of the nuclear weapons. There's not one central place. In the United States, it appears to me that it would take 15 men and women to approve the launching of a nuclear weapon. We think that only President Trump can launch, but he would have to get the concurrence, obviously, of the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the head of the uh, uh, House and Senate uh, as a practical matter, or, or the President pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House. So, uh, that's, so we probably have a group of 15 individuals who would, ha who would have to be involved. In India, uh, I, I don't know quite what the chain of command is, but I think it's a parliamentary system, so it's very clear. In Pakistan, it's very unclear who's in charge of the nuclear weapons. Uh, they say the, the president is, but we all know that there are several groups of generals who have nuclear weapons, and uh, if they ever got to fighting with, e with each other, it would be a, a disaster. Well, we, we focused a lot of time, which, which is not what I was planning to do. I was planning to draw you out on the whole story of the book first before we got into this discussion of Pakistan. But since we've already started it, let me just try and kind of summarize it. And uh, I would say that two things. Your concerns seem to be uh, the uh, lack of transparency, what you see as Pakistani dishonesty, uh, and also what you see as Pakistan's internal uh, lack of cohesion, uh, which Pakistanis would, of course, rebut uh, and say that that is not necessarily correct. So let's just uh, uh, stop there on the subject of Pakistan, but let's come to the spread of nuclear weapons. Um, obviously, the spread of nuclear weapons has been a problem. The Non-Proliferation uh, Treaty was signed assuming that only five countries will continue to possess nuclear weapons, the five major powers that are in the UN Security Council. Since then, India has gone nuclear publicly. Pakistan has gone nuclear publicly. It is believed that North Korea has nuclear weapons. It is believed that maybe Israel has nuclear weapons. Is it realistically possible to go back to a global order in which only those five countries that had nuclear weapons at the time of the signing of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty are the only ones that have it. How do you make somebody give up their nuclear weapons once they have it? Because after all, it does give a country a sense of power, a sense of security. So how do you persuade anybody to give it up? Well, as a practical matter, you probably cannot. Uh, and indeed, we can't roll history back. And my book has got a lot of the history in it, but I do reach conclusions uh, for today. For example, I conclude that we should declare Pakistan a terrorist state, which would put certain sanctions and standards on Pakistan, and we might and we should do that <clears throat> elsewhere where where necessary. But you're right that the whole nuclear um, the, the the whole new nuclear order is probably a rather arrogant um, uh, assumption on the part of the so-called great powers that big countries can have nuclear weapons and small ones shouldn't and uh, so forth. But uh, they're so destructive that there's, but that's the way it's historically evolved. Sometimes we have to play the cards that we are dealt, that's the concept of acceptance. And uh, so we have to go from here forward. And I don't think Pakistan nor North Korea is going to give up their nuclear weapons. But we have to, through the use of sanctions, through the use of all sorts of international pressure, try to have them structure and be transparent enough that we can be sure that uh, some rogue generals will not set nuclear weapons off or something of that sort. And that's really not a perfect answer. I don't have a silver bullet solution to it. Uh, I made four recommendations at the end of my book, the one of which was to declare Pakistan 
a, a, um, uh, uh, a terrorist state, but also uh, I made recommendations for some reforms to treat India at a higher level. And that is, in fact, I think Secretary Tillerson is in New Delhi today doing just that. Uh, uh, I've given, I sent several copies of my book over to the State Department. They were doing a policy review. I guess we sent eight, eight copies over there for the, the different agencies. Uh, but um, uh, by surprise, surprisingly enough, President Trump may be one of the best presidents for India, I mean, in terms of U.S.-India relations that we've had. Uh, he has, uh, he and Secretary Tillerson and uh, the Secretary of Defense are advocating closer relationships with India. They have, they're coming close to declaring Pakistan a terrorist state, or, or at least uh, in effect, and they are very interested in moving toward more free trade with India. Of course, India's, I've been critical of India, they've also got to uh, respond to free trade. So, oddly enough, uh, all the uh, tweets and criticism of the president, he may well be on the road uh, to more nuclear nonproliferation than any president recently. Um, on this, you know, since you brought it up, isn't uh, engagement a better policy than isolation of somebody, telling somebody that you're a rogue state, uh, you're a terrorist state might actually put them in a corner which makes them fight back rather than uh, listen to you, whereas engagement, isn't that what the purpose of the Pressler Amendment was at that time, that instead of shutting off all assistance to Pakistan, make it conditional, because that's what the Pressler Amendment did. It made it conditional that as long as you don't go nuclear, you, are, you qualify for assistance, because the original Symington and Glenn Amendments said nothing to do with countries, no aid, no assistance to countries that have nuclear weapons programs. So what has made you change from that approach of engagement to wanting isolation? Okay, well the original Pressler Amendment did see, it set some standards and it wanted to negotiate and it wanted to, uh, for things to be conditional on something. But at some point when George H.W. Bush came to office, he clearly realized that Pakistan was developing a nuclear weapon, so he enforced the Pressler Amendment. So we had to cut off our military uh, exercises with Pakistan. Citibank had to leave um, uh, Pakistan. Uh, we stopped our uh, uh, USAID programs there. And it was really a shocking thing to Pakistan. And I've s sometimes wondered <laughs> if Pakistan, well, I I'm convinced that had we continued with uh, the Pressler Amendment, they would not have developed a bomb. Now, that's just my judgment. You might give your own, but we... But Senator, but they did develop the bomb while the Pressler Amendment sanctions were in place from 90 to 98. So, so obviously, it didn't deter them, and it didn't stop them. So they, they just continued, still. Well, I think they had pretty uh, good assurances that the Pressler Amendment was not going to be enforced, certainly not by Bill Clinton, who really went for the top dollar in, in this whole uh, arena uh, in more ways than one. Uh, but that's, <clears throat> that's also in, in my book. But I, uh, I believe that they, th they thought that uh, they were getting signals from their lobbyists and lawyers in Washington that, this, that the Pressler Amendment was just a temporary thing. It was sponsored by this guy from South Dakota who would probably go away soon. Uh, and that it really, and so that's the reason that they insisted on calling it the Pressler Amendment, because they were trying to make it look like it wasn't a part of the administration's policy. This is just a micromanaging by the uh, foreign policy by by the Congress, and it will go away. So I don't think, but I, I think had we really persuaded the Pakistanis that it was going to stay, my judgment is that they would not have continued their their nuclear program. But you would probably know the answer to that better than I, because you were there and uh, better able to assess it. But um, uh, in any event, uh, I think that uh, Secretary Tillerson has, uh, and, and the Secretary of Defense have outlined some conditions uh, on t terrorism that Pakistan is not meeting. And if they do not meet those, then we would be justified in declaring them a rogue state. And I know that it's always better to be talking to somebody than isolating them. And as Secretary Tillerson said, we're, we are talking to both the Koreans and the uh, uh, we're talking to both the uh, both the Koreans and to the Pakistanis. 
uh, through all this, and I hope that that continues. So North Korea, of course, is a more visible, immediate threat that everybody recognizes. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, you talk about lack of transparency. North Korea is definitely perhaps the most non-transparent country in the world. Uh, few people know anything about how decisions are made there, uh, how it's governed. Uh, everybody knows that somebody called Kim Jong-un is in charge, but that's about it. Um, how in charge, we really do not know. I mean, um, uh, why isn't there more of a focus on North Korea's nuclear program in this city than we already see? Well, I think that the Americans... They don't, even, they don't even have the octopus working for them. They don't have a lobbyist in Washington, at least none that is visible. And, uh, and, and they don't even have an embassy here. So, so how well, are they succeeding in getting through whatever they're getting through? I think they've got China and Russia, and in particular China, who has been uh, very much involved. Uh, but uh, that is a very good point. Uh, they have the Chinese octopus working for them internationally. Um, let me say that uh, uh, I think in, in, in analyzing this whole uh, foreign policy thing that we have to remember that there are certain international firms that like to export arms, and it doesn't matter who they export them to, uh, nuclear materials and so forth. And they have been in the background in helping both Pakistan and North Korea get nuclear weapons one way or another. For example, John Glenn and I would have a piece of legislation that would prevent the State Department or the Defense Department from exporting certain things to Pakistan, and then the lobbyists would go over to the Commerce Department and get a license for exporting certain types of material or certain patents. Uh, so it, it was like a huge, it was like a battle we were fighting, and there were all these um, little um, uh, lobbying, not little, big lobbying firms and lawyers and others going about Washington. And Washington is such a vast government. I mean, we have the judiciary, we have the legislative department you can lobby, we have the all the agencies that can be lobbied, and uh, it is really hard to keep control of something like nuclear weapons. For, from our own point of view, we, we can sometimes become the largest proliferator. We can sometimes become, a ma I'd say the United States is a major proliferator of nuclear weapons in, in the case of Pakistan and in the case of North Korea, if you really go back to the very beginning. So this is really kind of a scary world, but I hope we're able to reverse that, and I sense that our current Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State are much more attuned to it. Uh, uh, President Trump has got, in my opinion, and I'm not speaking for Trump, uh, but certainly, but uh, he, has, he has acquired a foreign and a defense policy team that's probably the best we've had in many years. Uh, that's that's interesting because you did not support the president. I did not. I did not vote okay. for him, but uh, but I've been. I, I do write a biweekly column for the Deseret News out in Salt Lake City. Right. I have, people are saying, well, are you for Trump? You've been writing a lot of favorable things. Not, not necessarily favorable, I'm just saying that there are a lot of good things happening in foreign policy and in the Defense Department and the State Department these days. Okay, that's interesting. Now, let's say 2017, Senator Larry Pressler is back in the Senate. What, <laughs> what would you do in terms of legislation today? How would you prioritize the non-proliferation question? So you've expressed concerns about North Korea, you've expressed concerns about Pakistan. We haven't even got to Iran yet. But then there will be second-tier countries, countries who will quietly start having ambitions. North Korea's nuclear program might actually instigate a Japanese or a South Korean ambition, that, you know, how do we compete with these? Um, China's octopus might make Taiwan want to act differently. Uh, Pakistan's nuclear program came out of concerns about India's nuclear program. So there are all these international, uh, shall we say, rivalries and uh, threats that could make a large number of countries want to go nuclear. How does Senator Larry Pressler in the Senate today change the discussion about non-proliferation? Well, first of all, I think, that, uh, I think that there should be a return to the old, 
what I say, the old school of Republican foreign policy. That's Eisenhower, Nixon, uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, who believed in free trade, but, al but also in nuclear non-proliferation uh, wherever possible. And uh, this can be achieved through a number of things that, that the government can have. I don't think we can have a set rule. We're not going to be able to take nuclear weapons away from any country, but we can, we can deal with them. I mean, as uh, Eisenhower dealt with uh, the, the situation in Korea, as Nixon got us uh, uh, into China and uh, had some dialogue, uh, these are generalities, and Democrats do also sometimes. But uh, uh, I really hope that this administration, and, and uh, for example, I don't agree with the anti-free trade rhetoric that's coming out of this administration, but I don't know if that'll be the actual, there seems to be things in actual practice in this administration different from the rhetoric that surrounds it. So I hope that will be the case. So in essence, use trade as potential leverage over non-proliferation, that if you want to trade with us, if you have to want to have the economic benefits of being part of the global economic order, then you can't have nuclear weapons or you can't build nuclear weapons? Is that basically well, the strategy? We should, we should, and, and if you do have them, they should be accountable and you should have a, a transparent structure in your country that says who's in charge of them and, and, and some safety uh, safeguards that, uh, that uh, in, the, in the area of transparency. There are a whole number of things that countries can do besides uh, just, just trade that, that to uh, uh, reward uh, countries that refrain from developing nuclear weapons. Uh, and I think that uh, that, that was the case. Uh, had Brazil gone nuclear, some people think that then um, Argentina or someplace else might have. I'm, I'm sure that either Venezuela or Cuba would, would have been, Cuba tried to be. But we have a, a nuclear-free zone in South America. We should keep that. And we should try uh, where nuclear weapons presently exist but I wouldn't be so optimistic as to say that we will be that anybody's going to give them up. I don't think that will happen. But we have to make it clear that we expect a transparent, accountable system. So, in a way, if we go back a little, because you've described the past, and I commend the book for people who want to understand what happened and how the uh, how the debate on uh, uh, South Asian nuclear weapons was kind of lost. Uh, uh, in case of Brazil, when Brazil didn't, uh, Brazil gave up nuclear weapons. Argentina didn't follow up with nuclear weapons. So, in a way, getting Brazil to give up ensured that Argentina also gave up. Um, wouldn't that also have applied in the South Asian context if India had been focused on and if India had been stopped from going nuclear? then it might have been easier to get Pakistan to give up nuclear weapons too? Yes, well, I, I, we certainly urged both countries. It was my understanding that Pakistan was sort of going first on this, or that uh, that was the information that I had. You might have better information than that. But I believe that if, uh, if, both, if, if one or the other had, had stopped going forward, we would, we would have a nuclear-free um, Asian subcontinent today. Uh, the way this went back in the late 70s and early 80s, and that's ancient history, but Senator Glenn and I would continue to offer amendments and uh, make speeches and uh, travel to these countries uh, to try to point out how, how, how serious the United States thought that the development of nuclear weapons was and what a disaster it would be for our relationship. Now, it, uh, the, uh, the octopus, as I call it, that's the Pentagon and, and all the... Uh, arms contractors and all the lawyers and consultants and foundations sometimes who support them uh, would really, uh, and, and uh, I pointed out that I think the Brookings Institute was very much influenced by uh, a lot of contributions that it's got, and, and uh, we, we have that in the book here, uh, some of that listed. But uh, in terms of... I hope of you won't make friends at Brookings hate us for, for, for having you no, here. No, no, no. I, 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 okay. no the, they do a lot of good things also. And, Important uh, to say that, yes. And, uh, <laughs> in fact, I just read an article by Strobe Talbot on Russia the, the, in the Sunday's Times I thought was very good. But uh, uh, Brookings Institute or their leadership, both here and in India, have been major proponents of the U.S. nuclear agreement without saying that they knew very well that it would not be adopted in, in, in either country 
in so until, unless there were some kind of a liability agreement to begin with. So they, they were proposing an agreement and have, uh, boasting about it that has no chance of being implemented in my judgment. So you, would you consider yourself critical of the U.S.-India nuclear deal as well? Uh, I'm critical of, well, I'm, I'm glad the two countries have gotten on a friendship basis, but I, I think it's a false promise. Uh, we'd, I'm really for developing nuclear, peaceful nuclear energy in India and Pakistan or any other place. But um, uh, this agreement uh, was dead at the very beginning. It was much, much praised and signed and uh, uh, people prancing about and so forth. But there's no chance of it being implemented, in my judgment, because of the because the liability issues have not been addressed, and it hasn't been worked through. Another thing about the formulation of foreign policy, it has to kind of come from the people upwards to some extent, and um, the uh, support of rotary groups uh, <clears throat> for the Marshall Plan, of, uh, of rotary groups, of churches, of uh, different institutions across the country, it's important that, that, be, that a groundwork be laid. We saw what happened with Woodrow Wilson when there was no groundwork laid for the treaty uh, after World War I. Uh, but this U.S. nuclear agreement is the same way. There was no groundwork done in India or the United States. With the group. There were lobbying and law firms that pulled it together and uh, then had it uh, uh, signed with much accord, but there's there's nothing to it, really, if you look into it. It's, mo it's more of an arms sale agreement. President Obama's last trip to India was an arms sale trip, uh, uh, and the poor people of India have to pay uh, for all of these uh, new arms that their country is buying from the U.S., and this is really kind of a, but, but it's a new friendship, we're told. But we have to be very careful. I'm surprised, and I'm somewhat critical that India has accepted that on those terms. Tell us more about the book. Uh, what made you write it at this point? Uh, it's been a few years, almost 20 years since uh, you left the Senate. Um, surely it didn't take 20 years to write it. You just, you, just, <laughs> you, 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 just, you just decided a few months ago that this needs to be, this is a story yes. that needs to yes. be told. So why at this point, and what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Share that with our... I think it was some of the immediate news from Pakistan, from North Korea, and elsewhere that the nuclear Iran Iran you name it yes the Iran were this nuclear thing is becoming more and more the thing that might end the human race so I have kind of a passion to get this out there how serious this is and how how much we need to talk about it in our campaigns and in our party platforms and so forth and I would love for to see the uh, a renewed Republican grassroots effort in foreign policy for free trade and for nuclear nonproliferation and a number of other things, because the Democrats really can't do it because of their union base. Uh, so I think that there's a great uh, opportunity here uh, uh, for leadership. But I also feel strongly that somehow the message has to get to people, Pakistan in particular, how dangerous this is. Now, we think of North Korea as being more dangerous. The only reason that we're really immediately concerned about North Korea is that they uh, they ha maybe will develop a long-range missile that could strike the United States. But I would say that Pakistan's nuclear bombs, which are scattered around Pakistan, uh, somebody could go up there with so many million dollars in cash and uh, buy so many small nuclear weapons, haul them out in a pickup trucks and go through tunnels so they're not detected, haul them across land to Vietnam, as I said, and, and uh, we're, we're how, do you, how do you do that? I mean, you have to go through across all, all of India, et cetera, to Vietnam. Yeah, Where to go to Vietnam. You mean Afghanistan rather than Vietnam, surely, in, in geographic no, terms. No, no drive. It'd be a long drive, but you can drive from... Uh, <laughs> across the land. Okay. You'd have to okay. drive across China, probably, but you, yes, very easy. You'd bring along your lunch. Surely China is far more controlled, et cetera. So you, you, you need to work on this scenario a little more in, in, yes, well, in greater I mean. detail. Well, you can but, help the novel. You, you yeah, yeah, we'll, we, we'll talk about that later. But my point is, um, what do you say to those who say you have, partly because of the reaction that you faced at the end of the Pressler Amendment, uh, and, and that this is less about nuclear 
proliferation and it's become more about Pakistan for you, that you're, you're anti-Pakistan. Do you, do, you, do you sense that? Or how do you answer those people who say that as your criticism? No, it's not true. I like both Pakistan and India. In fact, at Oxford, I had two friends when I was there in 1964. I, I had a few more than two, but two in particular. One was Wasid Sajam, who became president of Pakistan. The other was uh, Montek Singh Aliawalia, who became the chief planner for India and the World Bank representative and so forth. So, uh, and I've always liked both of them, uh, uh, but uh, the, the Pakistani government was uh, just deceptive to those of us who would go over there to visit with them and to, to, to have a direct dialogue. The Indians were much more open and straightforward, in my judgment. Okay. Well, I think we are sort of on that note uh, ready for questions from the audience. Um, just raise your hand. Uh, I will point at you, identify you, and then one of our uh, friends uh, and our interns uh, will bring you a microphone. So let's start right here in the front. Do stand up, do speak in the mic, do introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Vijay Saswal. I'm a nuclear scientist uh, by profession, now retired, and was involved as a State Department advisor and for the U.S.-India Business Council on the U.S.-India nuclear deal. Uh, so since you made some comments about that, I was going to uh, mention two things, one where you're right and one where you're wrong. Where you're right is that, indeed, the U.S.-India nuclear, civil nuclear agreement provided a stepping stone for the octopus to build up on the defense deals. That's a fact. But you're wrong in saying that the U.S.-India nuclear deal is dead because it didn't have any legs. We spent a lot of time working it out. Now, why has it not gone? You have a misplaced notion that it's liability. Liability issue has been resolved long time back. But American companies are still arguing for that. Why? Because they cannot sell the power from a nuclear power plant. American nuclear power plants are expensive. We cannot sell them. The American reactors have not been sold overseas for decades. So we are in a position where we cannot be competitive on the global marketplace. Unfortunately, there's always that colonial outlook. You beat on country because you cannot tell them the truth, that we are not able to sell you at the price that you want. So U.S.-India nuclear deal indeed is a very noble and a path-breaking gesture. The challenge for us Americans is to come back in companies and be able to think innovatively so that we can compete on the global marketplace to sell the power from those companies. But yes, it did provide a stepping stone for the, for the other people. That was my comment. I, I thought I'll oh. share that with you. Thank you. I thank you very much. That's good information. And I'd like to talk to you some more about that, because uh, are the French able to supply nuclear power plants at a lower cost? Well, then why don't we let the French do it? That would be my uh, re reaction. Uh, The French, uh, French uh, company used to be called Riva, which, by the way, was my employer for many years. Uh, they have been subsequently uh, uh, reorganized because they sort of also could not compete in the global marketplace. They have been essentially fractured in many companies, and uh, EDF, the, the French nuclear utility, has taken over the part of the nuclear negotiations with India. And those negotiations have gone fairly extensive, but they have to be revised because the previous employer was, uh, previous uh, French company was Riva. So we have a, we have, they have, they have issues essentially dealing with the same, which is that uh, reactors that are supplied by Western reactor companies do not at this time have enough structure within their companies, within their countries, that they can actually take uh, uh, benefit of the economies of scale and be productive. So we are, at this time, in fact, I'm very much involved in the U.S. US under, under the new administration, we actually have a situation where we are trying to revitalize nuclear power. And it is my hope that perhaps Westinghouse will sign nuclear reactor deal with India after it gets uh, resorted out, uh, out of the uh, bankruptcy before the end of the year. I would suggest a conversation between the two of you. Absolutely. For, I would the, like to. for the general audience, this is what in the, uh, in the teenage speak of these days, it's called TMD, too much detail. So, <laughs> um, okay, the young lady here. 
Thank you so much. I, my name is Aisha Chaudhary. I'm here from Pakistan. So, yeah, as Hakani Sab said, I do see a bias. Though I came here today to see, uh, to listen to you and see if there was something that I had in my mind which was not true, and I would feel otherwise. Um, we are. I am a part of a political party there, and I, uh, Pakistan Tariqe Insaf. Uh, so I am the younger lot of uh, politicians that are coming out, and we are the people you'll have to deal with. And to, after today's conversation, one of the things that I'd like to say is that the sanctions are really not working on us. The, the, if you think that declaring us a terrorist state or putting more sanctions on us, none of that is going to work on us anymore. We need to actually, we will start looking the other side, and that is a choice that you are making, not us. So. Please choose otherwise if you want us to choose you. <laughs> yes. Well, let me emphasize that I'm not just anti-Pakistan. Someone wrote that I, I, I was, but because through the years, uh, I have been an advocate of many things for both India and Pakistan. I'd love to see there be peace. And I feel that I've been a little bit critical of the present BJP government in India for fear that it will not treat the Muslim minority correctly. And... Uh, uh, I was just in the south of India in my book tour that I just made. I'm just back from India, uh, having had stops at bookstores in New Delhi and uh, Mumbai and Chennai. And uh, there are several other minorities in India who feel that they are not being treated well. Well, that's true. Of course, our own country has a great problem. We have problems. All countries have problems. But I think uh, uh, that uh, the United States and India and Pakistan can do pretty well economically but we just can't tolerate any more uh, the looseness that Pakistan apparently has in terms of a central control and uh, that their elected officials are not in the chain of command of their nuclear deployment. Things like that uh, cause me a lot of, and, and you would not agree with that probably. I will not. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I think you should just agree to disagree. Um, and, uh, and, and secondly, but I would say to a young Pakistani, uh, not just you, Pakistanis are also living in a narrative that is purely Pakistani. I think you should pay attention to what the senator said, that while he started out by being critical of the nuclear program of everybody, it was Pakistan's repeated inability to keep the promises that made him particularly uh, critical. Now, uh, I'm a Pakistani too, and I would say that there is some merit to that argument, whether Pakistanis want to recognize it or not. We have a tendency to overpromise and then later on give excuses for why we couldn't keep our promise. That's not just in relation to the nuclear issue. We've seen that over Afghanistan in the last two decades. So we also need to learn something out of this whole equation instead of just repeating things that we have repeated for many years without any effect. This is a critical moment in U.S.-Pakistan relations, and perhaps finding middle ground is more important than just, just sticking to old talking points. Yes, sir. Senator, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Japan native, U.S. citizen. Um, you mentioned Pakistan is more dangerous than North Korea. Um, can you expand or clarify what you meant? Uh, it's number one. Number two, what could we offer North Korea in order for them to come to the uh, negotiation table, if it's possible. Thank you. Well, uh, I, I think that we need to feed the ego of this North Korean dictator. And one way to do it, I've just read in the papers the last few days, is that former President Carter has uh, apparently offered himself as the sort of the president's envoy. Maybe he could go over there and sit down with him and make him feel important or whatever. Jimmy Carter has done a lot of good things, and maybe he could uh, uh, I think what North Korea needs is just a lot of attention and uh, uh, hand-holding. Now with Pakistan it's a different thing because you don't really have one person in charge. You, uh, I think Pakistan is more dangerous to the United States and I, I don't think their weapons are going to be used against India. I think they're going to be gotten out of Pakistan. So I, mean, I don't want to get on the, in, in on the details of of uh, driving a pickup, but maybe they'd be flown in an airplane or sent in a boat, or you'd, we'd figure out some other way to, to get them. Um, uh, but their weapons could be transported to the United States fairly simply. 
and just as nine eleven was a very simple operation run by twenty or thirty people so could getting if you gave somebody enough cash you could somebody i said well you could pay the general so much to get the nuclear bombs or some someone else said well you could buy it from the colonels because they've got keys to get the nuclear bombs out and you could get a lot cheaper but in any event that could be that could happen so the the pakistani nuclear bombs are not controlled they're 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 subject to state to sale or stealing and they could be easily gotten out of pakistan to just about anywhere in the world and i used a pickup truck as an analogy from my proposed movie which vin roke is here he's going to write the uh the uh movie script gosh so we already have a movie uh announcement uh which was not the plan today uh, right at the back <laughs> senator i'm uh, group captain ali i'm there at ashia the embassy of pakistan and i have a question with three parts uh, i'll not make any comments uh, first is uh, since you have talked about this uh, novel and uh, probably uh, going through the pakistan and other things how do you justify uh, at least three to four occasions where uh, in a usaf c1 uh, c17 parts of nuclear weapons uh, were shipped to a usaf base where they remained there for over one week unattended and i've done uh, awa college for montgomery alabama so i know all those details how do you justify that secondly would it be appropriate for you can we go one 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 at a time so united states air force uh, losing or not or, losing or unattended being, uh, being there at least thrice on a usaf base uh, parts of those uh, uh, nuclear weapons and and if i may try and interpret the uh, group captain's uh, question it basically is that so far pakistan has never had such an incident so so the us has occasional question everybody talks about pakistan's new nu loose nukes but the pakistanis proudly point out that we haven't had any nuclear incidents or accidents of the kind that you have had Good. isn't that the correct interpretation exactly. thank you well we've got carlton stoiber the leading uh, nuclear legal expert in the world sitting in the audience so he could probably cite some examples but i would say that there probably been a lot of examples that we don't know about in in all countries and that's one of my problems with a lot of nuclear weapons floating around that's why i was interested in nuclear nonproliferation as part of my career and uh uh out in south dakota where i come from i guess the pentagon wants to refresh some of the warheads i thought we were removing them under the non lugar agreement but um uh um yes if if there are a lot of nuclear weapons around there are going to be incidents uh some incidents of uh, you know where they're dangerous or one could go off so basically you would say that all nuclear weapons are bad whether they are american nuclear weapons or anybody else's and well that's where i would feel the end game should be to get rid of all nuclear weapons. well that would be the uh, ideal but i'm also a pragmatist and uh, uh i think that we have to accept that to get better control and more transparency and more lines of more chains of command but i think the united states chain of command on its nuclear weapons is is quite good okay group captain second point uh, the second is so how do you justify trying to control other countries in uh, reducing their nuclear weapons Uh, while you were uh, talking about the octopus and the military industrial complex isn't it time for the us to uh, look inwards and try to clean up own house uh, because it's the us administration which is letting this happen so why isn't the us doing something inwards rather than pointing fingers outwards towards other countries well we should be doing much more and we do need weapons reform in fact we're building a lot of weapons not only nuclear weapons but other weapons that i don't think make us any stronger I don't think we should launch any more uh uh carriers. Uh, we've got I think 12 or 13 or 14 operational ones and no other country in the world has really got any operational ones that I know of. And uh the same thing is as the Secretary of Defense testified for Congress and they said why don't you cut spending over there at the Pentagon? He said, "Well, we try to eliminate several lines of weapons and the Congress keeps restoring them under our lobbying uh law firm consulting firm type of making foreign policy and making defense policy uh we do have a new secretary of the air force from uh south dakota uh heather uh wilson who is president of the university of south dakota school of mines but uh i hope she's able to slow down a little bit although i have not any indication that she is trying but uh the air force in particular is 
uh, from Ellsworth Air Force Base on is just into a great expansion mode. And I don't think it makes us any stronger uh, uh, unless we're building these weapons to offset a particular threat. Third one, you said three questions, and I've given you three. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the last one is, uh, would it really be appropriate to categorize Pakistan and North Korea on the same page? Y yes, I would from a nuclear, from a nuclear dangerous point of view. And uh, I think that they are both uh, uh, rogue states, in my opinion. They both uh, do not have the interests of the United States in mind. Pakistan has and is harboring terrorists. And North Korea is, is a threat to, to the United States. Uh, but I'm one of those persons, I think, like uh, in the Eisenhower-Nixon philosophy, you have to sort of accept things as they are and uh, try to work from there. Uh, uh, I think that uh, North Korea can be, uh, we're just going to have to deal with the situation. We really don't have military options in North Korea, because even if we destroyed them nuclearly, nucle nuclearly uh, we would, they would still have enough conventional weapons to destroy Seoul and South Korea. And uh, so we really don't have a military option when you really come down to it there. And that's why I'm a little worried about some of the presidents of both parties' uh, strong statements. And those kind of statements probably shouldn't be made unless we're going to follow through with them. Good. Uh, okay. So a couple more questions here in the middle, then I'll move to the uh, Doug there. Uh, right. The gentleman in the, uh, is it a brown shirt or a whatever the color is. <laughs> Thank you, sir. This is Amal Khan from National Defense University. I'm currently on a research tour in uh, Washington, DC. I have a question to uh, Senator Pressler that some of the critics in Pakistan believe that your language of amendment was so vague that it actually helped Pakistan to build its nuclear weapon. And secondly, I was reading, uh, going through a literature on uh, from the Cold War era. It suggests that the peripheral states were you know supplied with the arms by the uh, core state uh, to uh, you know to uh, ag uh, to ex uh, increase the level of hostility between the regional uh, rivals and also as a vehicle to persuade their, uh, pursue their own interests so in in the whole talk i unable to understand that what was the american interest in supplying arms during the cold war era to pakistan uh, thank you sir so, yeah, what was the U.S. interest in supporting or supplying weapons to Pakistan during the Cold War? Yes, well, yes, that was his second question. And, and the first one was that the language of the Pressler so, Amendment was, was so vague so that it actually enabled Pakistan. Yes, let me uh, answer that first one in the order. Uh, the, uh, the language was not so vague. That is an argument that is used especially by some from some of the Pakistani intellectuals saying that it was a bogus thing to start with. That's not true. John Glenn made a very powerful speech rebutting that. Actually, this was the Pressler-Glenn Amendment, and the Pentagon would always call it Pressler Amendment because they wanted to make it sound like it was by some rogue senator out there. And John Glenn was so famous, they didn't want to put his name on it because they didn't want to give it uh, any more uh, credibility. But, but a little bit more of history now, to say that I am automatically anti-Pakistan uh, as this amendment uh, uh, lays out. At first, Pakistan supported the Pressler Amendment. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it. At first, Pakistan supported the Pressler Amendment. Their lobbyists were called Neil and Company, and they were up there around the Foreign Relations Committee uh, advocating for the Pressler Amendment because Pakistan said that was their official position. We don't have a nuclear weapon. We don't plan to develop one. And we got no problem with the Pressler Amendment. In fact, the first Pressler Amendment, uh, Jimmy Carter had shut off aid to, this is arguing about ancient history, but uh, had shut off aid to Pakistan. And they saw it as a way of restoring aid to Pakistan. Some did. So to say that this Senator Pressler is just against Pakistan, Pakistan was for the Pressler Amendment. So be, put that into your brain deep into your brain when you're discussing the Pressler Amendment, because it isn't just automatically a negative. It was a true nonproliferation effort that had a great following and a great, and, and Ronald Reagan strongly supported it. And I, I was a personal friend of Ronald Reagan because of our discussions about Alzheimer's disease and so forth and a whole bunch of other things. But Ronald Reagan personally supported the Pressler Amendment, as did 
George H.W. Bush. And I, I have a feeling that those two presidents were two real Republican foreign policy presidents who did a good job. Uh, uh, but in particular, George H.W. Bush, there was no question in his mind but to enforce the Pressler Amendment and support it completely, which he did. And of course, Bill Clinton, the very first thing he did was to dismantle it when he came into office as much as he could. And that is the difference in the two political parties' approach to things. And we've got to get back to the old-fashioned Republican foreign policy school. And I may rejoin the Republican Party if we can. The gentleman, and, and then, right? Yeah, uh, the no, second, no, good, the yeah, second question was what, I mean, obviously you are critical of the octopus, but part of the reason why the octopus flourishes is because sometimes U.S. strategic uh, sort of approaches result in situations like arming Pakistan. So why did the U.S. arm Pakistan during the Cold War? Well, I'm, I'm sure part of it was because we fell into this trap of trying to reward them for taking all the refugees and thinking that we, it's just false thinking when you embrace a, a country that is, that has been very false to you as a temporary ally, it never works up, and it certainly has not. Okay. Yes, I see Tim White's right in. behind him. Yes. My name is Tim White. I'm with the Spectrum Group uh, in Alexandria, and I am a retired U.S. Air Force General Officer, and to my friend, I would point out that when there were violations of the chain of command that resulted in nuclear incidents that you refer to, heads rolled. They're gone. So there is an accountability. It needs to be improved, as the senator pointed out. But, Senator, your, your book and this discussion, first of all, congratulations on walking into Lion's Den. I, you've done a fine job here. Um, <laughs> That was going to be my line. That was your line. <laughs> I'm sorry end, to steal your end line. End the morning. Come on. I'm so sorry to steal your line. Nevertheless, the book think and of this new discussion have focused really on, on uh, proliferation and non-proliferation issues as you apply them to what you see as the vulnerabilities of Pakistanis commanding control over its nuclear weapons uh, arsenal. If, if, you, if you move to the title uh, of your book and uh, that we see on the screen, disarmament on the nuclear subcontinent or, or uh, nuclear disarmament on the subcontinent. Can you imagine, Senator, a situation in which India and Pakistan would see it in their mutual interest to have bilateral non-nuclear military forces? De-escalation, elimination bilaterally of the, because that would solve the proliferation issue, wouldn't it? That is a stroke of genius. I would love to see something like that, like that considered. There are a lot of areas that India and Pakistan agree on, and they have, in my opinion, I can never tell the difference in the people, and I know there's the religious thing and so forth, but they have so many common interests that, that which are probably against China in the long run, although free trade there would be a great boon to all of them, if, but that's an area where India has to do much more. That's where I've been critical of India on some occasions, uh, is uh, that they don't practice free trade as much as they would like other countries to do so. But uh, it would be great to have some bilateral disarmament in our old world, and that would be a great place to start. And also, India and Pakistan could have joint forces for certain pur purposes, whatever that might be. And uh, there's a whole area for thinking here that we just seem to be locked into uh, an old mentality, and I hope we can break out of it. And I hope my book will make a little bit of, of a dent in that. And I've had a very good book tour in India. I went to three Indian cities. And my book is doing pretty well in India. And I hope it'll do well in the United States after today's launch at the Hudson Institute. I'm sure that it'll also do well in Pakistan. People would yes, definitely yes, want yes, to read yes. it, although many will be critical. But it's look, that's how discussion moves forward, by having opinions and ideas that are not necessarily, if everybody starts off with agreement, you just hug and go to sleep. Um, Question right there. Uh, Doug Johnston with the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy. Uh, thank you both for a very engaging discussion. Um, one thought I had, Senator, that uh, causes me to think that you should be every bit as concerned about North Korea as you are Pakistan. And that is because uh, the leader has gone on record uh, that the nuclear weapons are not negotiable 
and one can easily understand why you would take such a position. If that's the case, I doubt seriously that we should be fearful of a direct attack from there. But it seems to me that the more they're backed into a corner, and particularly if China's on board, uh, he's going to have very few options, one of which it's probably at least semi-lucrative, would be uh, selling this technology to terrorists. I think I'd be very concerned about that. Well, I thank you very much, and I thank you, your group. I know religions and, uh, and churches and synagogues uh, have played a great role in the formulation of domestic policy and foreign policy in the United States in a very positive way. I know the, uh, the Presbyterian Church, I just read their National Council has adopted some kind of a resolution regarding the Middle East, but I'm not going to go there to say what it is. But the point is Catholic Relief Services or uh, our various communities uh, have a tradition of being active in foreign policy. And we should listen to them and, and uh, hear them out. Uh, of course, we can't always follow everything that they might uh, uh, suggest. But, uh, and I might say that, that your friend uh, Taylor Keeland, who helped me with this book so much, is here today. And I've been meaning to find an excuse uh, to thank her. But she, I think, brought you today. So um, I don't know if, if I've, I've made a statement here, but I don't know if I've responded to the question. Well, the question, the question is that, you know, he, he's just pointed out all the reasons why we should be uh, concerned about North Korea as well. Yes. And yes, very yes. seriously. And I, and I appreciate that very, very much. And, the, and uh, I would put them both about on an equal plane. But I, I personally believe Pakistan is more dangerous to us. Okay. Uh, I, I think Mr. Johnson's point was that North Korea is equally, if not more, is, that, is, is how I understood it. Uh, last two questions. Uh, were you raising your hand, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had always understood that India's primary motivation for going nuclear was not a worry about Pakistan because militarily India is so much more powerful than Pakistan conventionally. I don't think India had a real fear of Pakistan that drove that decision. I always understood it was China. China is always hostile and adverse towards India. Wasn't that what drove India primarily to go nuclear? And if so, why would India ever think of giving up nuclear weapons with China on their back door? Well, that's a very good uh, point. And some people uh, say that uh, China is building that big road across uh, China and Pakistan and on the new Silk Road. But I say it's economic development, and that's good. Uh, and China is doing some economic development projects in Africa. And some people say, oh, they're, uh, I say that's good um, uh, for the people of Africa and for economic development. So I'm not just a, a flat-out critic of uh, China. But I don't think China wants to go to war with India. It doesn't, it couldn't possibly rule a single Indian, Indian state, the people there are so independent. And uh, I, I, I just don't think that China is as dangerous as some people uh, say it is. China is a very controlled, uh, their, their weapon system is very controlled. They also have a very healthy economy and they're getting rich and getting more cars and all that. So I don't see that, uh, but uh, I think that Tom Patton, uh, the, the, uh, the lawyer here, he makes a very good point. Uh, but uh, in my mind, I don't think India would have gone nuclear if they hadn't seen Pakistan doing so. Okay. Um, although that, Tom's point was that it was probably more directed at China. So uh, that, that question still remains unanswered. I think, th I think we still have a problem. Like, as long as there's somebody who has nuclear weapons, somebody else will want to have yes, them. Yes, yes. And, okay, so, and we're in a real world as a practical matter. Yeah. Nobody's going to give up their nuclear weapons. Yeah. So let's club these two questions to bring it to an end. Uh, Mr. Vasti here. and Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I'm Iftihar Hussain. I work for Voice of America. Thank you for the discussion, uh, Ambassador Haqqani and you, Larry Bressler. I have two questions. Um, number one, can you just describe us the scenario that the Pakistani nuclear weapons can be transported to the United States? This is what you mentioned. I think that's already happened. We've uh, already gone through. So <laughs> I'm going to disallow that question. Go on. Ask and also, the second question is, um, don't you think the U.S. priorities be before the Pressler Amendment may 
have overlooked the possibilities that Pakistan is building uh, nuclear weapons. And it was a, uh, I mean, lake on part of the, the U.S. It was not Pakistan, but more on the U.S. policy. Basically, the U.S. ignored what was really yeah. happening. Or its own interest. Isn't that, is that, yeah. And there are people who thought that the war in Afghanistan was more important and, you know, what's happening with Pakistan's nuclear program is less important. And could that have been the reason why eventually the Pressler Amendment had to be invoked? And this gentleman here, so we can have all the questions, remarks, and then we can have final comments. My name is Suleiman Wasti. I'm a student of the Middle East and a friend of Larry and also Mr. Hakan. Uh, just a correction, Larry. I'm not too concerned about the command and control of the Pakistan's nuclear arsenal. I'm more concerned about the rogue nuclear scientists like A.Q. Khan, the most revered guy, uh, like the father of Pakistan bomb. The second one is Qadri. I don't, don't want to mention him. But those are the people who are peddling all these technologies to uh, you know, countries of the Middle East and others. That's my major concern, and I would like you to you know, take note of it in your sequel. Pakistani nuclear scientists who might go rogue rather than the Pakistani state going rogue. That's mm -hmm. that's the more more important. So both these things. Okay. American, uh, so Americans drop the ball. That's the first one, and rogue nuclear scientists the second. Okay, and I, I can't uh, avoid going back to my uh, thriller movie in which a a, 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 a weapon. You could put one in a crate and get it inside one of those transport planes that are flying in and out of Afghanistan every day or Pakistan. But somehow you could do it. So, so I think it's very dangerous to the United States. Now let's not try and rehearse that for the okay. movie. So okay. that, that could have, that could have consequences yes, itself. But yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm trying to think back, but uh, America dropped the ball yeah. on the nuclear program because yeah. of Afghanistan. Yes. Well, it was a fascinating thing to me with President Ronald Reagan, and I did know him personally uh, more so than uh, a, lo a lot of other people did. Um, and he was very much for the Pressler Amendment concept, but I think in his second term, uh, he was not paying as much attention to detail, and his staff did some end runs. That's another thing about Washington, D.C. The lawyers and lobbyists and the staffers uh, working with the guys in the Defense Department and in the, uh, the, the second and third level staffers can do a lot of things, and they kind of undid the Pressler Amendment, but also Ronald Reagan, uh, I, I think he got very bad staff advice, or he just signed off on the certification. Uh, that's my, because it was different from what he said to me, and I discuss this in my book, it's very confusing to me as to how, the, how that came about. But yes, I suppose you could say that the U.S. government did turn a blind eye to, um, because of the uh, situation in Pakistan. In Afghanistan. In, uh, in Afghanistan, yes, in Afghanistan. And, and Mr. Wasti's comment about rogue nuclear scientists? Well, uh, I certainly would uh, worry about them also. And in Pakistan, it appears to me that there's less control over the nuclear community, and there are five or six centers of the nuclear community in Pakistan. Whereas in India, they really have got the thing, they really appear to have the thing tied down to one, to one chain of command. And I believe we have things tied down to one chain of command in the United States. And as, and as uh, General White pointed out, heads did roll when that nuclear mistake was made. So it was made, recognized, and a few people got fired over that. Well, thank you very much for an interesting conversation. We are not all going to agree on everything, but a wonderful book here with some historic insights, which people don't always have to read to agree, but to learn from. So a wonderful book, uh, Neighbors in Arms, and a uh, big thank you to Senator Larry Pressler, uh, as well as as well as to all the lobbyists and lawyers in the audience who <laughs> took who took quite a bit from both of us today. <laughs> well, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.